describe using tautological or somewhat unsatisfying terms. Diplomacy operates in a unique space in international affairs, part institution, part profession. What the term conjures can range from the mundane to the mythical. The Australian Institute of International Affairs Victoria presents our Meet the Diplomat series as an attempt to provide insight into diplomacy through the probing of experiences of those who have acted as diplomats. I would like to again honour the uh, say thank you to uh, DFAT Victorian State Office for their for their help in setting this up. Um, the Meet the Diplomat series, uh, in essence, is a way of establishing a, a connection to diplomats like John, who I'll introduce in a second, um, and hearing more about their experiences, hearing more about what they actually do as diplomats, what their job looks like. And as a way of balancing out the fact that we, we hear a lot as young people about how to become a diplomat, um, but more, more rarely than I would like, we don't get to actually hear what they do in their everyday life. Um, so anyway, now it is, my, <laughs> it is my absolute pleasure to introduce John. Uh, John served as the Australian ambassador to Brazil from 2016 to 2018. He served as Australia's ambassador to Argentina, Paraguay and Uruguay and as Deputy Head of Mission at Australia's embassies in both Germany and Thailand. In Canberra, John has served in a number of senior roles, including as a member of the APEC Task Force, the Diplomatic Security Branch, and the Trade Security Branch. Uh, today, we're hoping to hear just some of the experiences that you've had, John, and gained during your career, and I welcome you today. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much, James. It's a real pleasure to be here. I think it's a wonderful opportunity to talk to people about that fascinating experience that one has the privilege to have as a diplomat. May I also just start, though, by recognising the traditional elders past and present of the Kulam Nation on the land on which we are gathered uh, to have this webinar. Mm. I'm really looking forward to this, and mm. I think it's a, a really good opportunity to see part of the other side of diplomacy. Yeah, yeah, no, and uh, absolutely. And I think I think if if we can start there, that would be a really good place to start. I think um, in your experience, what what does it mean to conduct diplomacy? Well, I, I suppose traditionally diplomacy, or the conduct of diplomacy, was all about persuading. Mm through discussion and influencing the behavior of other countries. And uh, traditionally that was focused on uh, high politics, but, but increasingly it covers almost the full spectrum of policy issues because the traditional distinction between foreign policy and domestic policies has become increasingly blurred uh, over the years. So there's um, a very strong emphasis on economic diplomacy, on climate change, on Antarctica, on a whole range of other issues which may not at one time have been quite the same subject of diplomacy. Now, conducting its all about influencing people, as I said. So how do you influence people? Well, mm. firstly, you've got to understand the country you're in. So a critical component of being a diplomat of diplomacy is getting out and really as far as possible getting under the skin of the country that you are in, getting to know who are the people who make the decisions, mm. not just formally, but informally. Mm. Who are the people who influence them? Who are the social influences? What's the role of the media? And so it goes on. You really need 
to come to understand as far as you possibly can what makes that country tick. Mm. But at the same time, avoiding that dreaded disease of localitis. <laughs> that has been the end of many good diplomats' career when they think you've gone native. <laughs> because you really have to understand, of course, your interests, Australia's interests. It's mm. quite critical. You are there to understand that country and interpret it back to Australian decision makers. Um, and to do that, you have to understand very clearly both Australian policy and its uh, evolution. So it's all about getting out and about, meeting people, building networks, establishing relationships. Uh, it's very much a, uh, a, a critical in, in that regard. You then have to interpret it back to Canberra. And of course, in, um, when you're out meeting people, you try to create a favourable impression of Australia. Mm. You want to build and influence people. Mm. At the same time, I have to say, sometimes you conduct a bit of diplomacy back to Canberra, <laughs> trying to persuade people back there that the country that you are in is actually worth devoting resources to. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure it's a common experience of um, many diplomats from whatever country, outside, of course, a handful of really key relationships that you never think the people back in Canberra, Washington, London, Wellington, Berlin, regard the country you're in with the true importance that it in fact has. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's, and that's an interesting point. So how much, how much then is there of what, of what um, our viewers who haven't been diplomats um, might imagine as the traditional role of, of the diplomat? How much diplomacy is there actually in being a diplomat? And how much of it is just more naturally getting to know people? Do you always have that idea in mind that you're, you are a diplomat and you are serving? You always have, I think, or should have, a yep. very clear idea of what Australia's interests are. Yeah. And yes, you do spend a lot of time going out and meeting people, but generally you do that for a reason. Yeah. Of course, you, you do it socially, but it's always valuable to see what insights you can get from people. Whoever you're talking to will have an insight on some particular aspect of the society that you're dealing with. Mm. And that can actually then feed in uh, to the overall picture of that you are creating of how that country functions. It's an opportunity to test some of your assumptions and you need to do that continually. Uh, those, you know, it evolves and you've got to keep up with that uh, evolution. Mm. So in, in one sense, you are never, when you are on posting, not a diplomat. Yeah. You can't ever quite let down your guard entirely. Yeah. But at the same time, you've got to lead a as normal a life as you can. Mm. And uh, that balance is actually quite a challenge. Yeah. And it can be a challenge actually for families, for partners, for children, um, and so on. Mm. And so I guess, I guess building, building upon that idea then of creating those relationships, um, we hear a lot, or at least students of international relations, hear a lot about the ideas of trust, about it being hugely important in conducting international affairs. How do you go about building that in 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 that in that um, country that you're in? Well, as an Australian diplomat, I have to say that we start with a a bonus. Mm. Most countries um, have a generally favourable impression of Australia. We're fortunate in that regard. Mm. They may not have a detailed understanding of Australia and uh, some of the challenges uh, often 
uh, to move the image that people have of Australia as a you know, land of surf, sun, sand, and koalas to yeah. a more sophisticated understanding of what our modern, uh, multicultural, highly diverse uh, society really is. Mm. So, in terms of it, so my, my point in saying that yeah. uh, is, is that it's generally easier to get access than it might be given the overall objective weight that Australia holds in that other country. Mm. When you're there, you then, of course, when you're meeting people, you have to actually show that you have something to offer them, that what you are actually saying is worthwhile, that it's of interest to them, yeah. that uh, it uh, enables them in whatever it is that they are doing. Mm. So many times, often, you, you are looking for particular ways to engage those people in terms of engaging with their self-interest mm. in support of Australia's interests. Mm. And that's where understanding what their interests are becomes absolutely critical. Yeah. So um, you can gain entry through that process, mm. And then trust is much like in any other human relationship. You have to be a consistent, um, you have to be respectful, um, you need to reciprocate. Yeah. You need to have something to offer them which makes it worthwhile continuing that relationship mm. and makes it a value to them. Mm. And I guess so then if you are advocating for your country to get more attention back in Canberra, mm. can, you then, can you then use... Can you then use that as a way of um, gaining that sort of ability to form a relationship? Can you go back to camera and say, you know, what can we offer to, to say, Brazil? Has that- well, I, I think that's uh, exactly what you do a lot of. Mm. I mean, what, what often happens, uh, when you go into a country, uh, yes, there's a whole history of the bilateral relationship, but often you have to, very early on in a posting, mm. consider where is a particular value add that I might make mm. in addition to the great uh, work that has been done uh, in the past? Mm. So you need to identify emerging trends and ones where you can really add value. Mm. Uh, then you can um, try to represent then back to Canberra why that's important. Let me take yeah. a specific example. Yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, in the case of Brazil, mm. it's... Uh, little known that Brazil is the largest source of foreign students outside Asia. It's the fourth or fifth largest source of international students uh, to Australia. And it's been growing very, very rapidly. In the time that I was there, it was growing at 20% plus a year. Wow. So it was worthwhile uh, going and meeting with all the educational institutions. I spent a lot of time doing that. Mm. But also then emphasizing back to Canberra why this was important because it provided an opportunity to diversify for our universities yeah. um, and to encourage uh, both Canberra uh, and the institutions to put the resources into building those relationships. Mm. Uh, so yes, you, you, you have a advocacy within the country, but often you need to have an advocacy back into Australia. Yeah. yeah. Take another example. People often don't realize, and again, I've used Brazil as the most recent yes. example, yeah. uh, that the Brazilian economy is approximately half of the total economy of South America. Wow. It's an enormously 
big economy in its own right. It has a very large middle class, which is quite wealthy. Mm. Yes, it's having really major problems at the moment. Mm. Uh, but it provides enormous potential in an economic space. Mm. And often that's not appreciated back um, in Australia. So you're yeah. actually having to go to people and say, this is why Brazil matters. Yeah. Equally, you have to then, within Brazil, say, why does Australia matter? Mm. And there, there's actually a very good story to tell of Australia's economic success. Mm. And the very parallels which exist, which are very close between the economic structures of Brazil and Australia, mm. make the Australian experience quite relevant to Brazil in a way that many Brazilians would not have thought of mm. until you actually draw it to their attention. I, that's, that's, that's really interesting and, and shows that exact point of, of being able to advocate for that relationship. If we, if we, shift, if we shift to Asia, because you've spent a significant mm. portion of your time in Asia as well, is, is, that, is it easier to get Australia to understand the importance of places like Japan or of Thailand in, in, in that sense of building those relations? James, um, I find that actually very ironical. Yeah. I spent the early part of my career uh, as an Asia man, yeah. uh, an Asia hand, <laughs> and uh, I suddenly found towards the end of my career that I'd become a Latin American hand. <laughs> but the early part of my career was largely spent trying to convince Australians of how important uh, Asia was. Mm. Uh, I, I had a particular role um, at one time in economic research uh, where we were putting out a lot of information on why Asia mattered, why Japan mattered, right. interpreting Japan to Australians. Uh, and I listened quite often to a lot of the debate, which still goes on, yeah. about Asia. And I think, deja vu. <laughs> Been there, done that. <laughs> and so uh, so then other 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 ways to influence those societies different because you spent a lot of time in south america and a lot of time on on asia as well are the ways to influence those society different or are, are do they look broadly similar when you're a diplomat in in different continents the way in which you influence people is very much uh, in turn influenced by the culture yeah so the way that you gain entry um into another culture, the way in which you relate to them, mm. um, it can be quite different and influenced by the country culture itself. Yeah. yeah. But the basic method by which you go about it mm. um, in terms of offering uh, something of value to the person you're talking with uh, is essentially very similar. Mm. So it might be that the... Uh, the method of communication or, uh, or the messages that you convey are similar. The context in which you do it is slightly different. And you have to take those cultural differences strongly uh, into account. Mm, yeah. So what makes then, I mean, from, from your experience, what makes a good diplomatic negotiation then? What makes something good? Yeah. Well, in a way... There are several levels of negotiation yeah. uh, as a starting point. Uh, now, at one level, any discussion that you have with someone in a foreign country or with a foreign diplomat mm. is a form of negotiation because typically you are seeking information from that person and to gain that information, you generally have to offer 
something in return. Yeah. So it's that that process of ex- exploration yeah. also involves a negotiation and an exchange, and it involves um, building trust, uh, building um, rapport with the person, encouraging them to go that step further in terms of their willingness to, to share information with you. So at one level, hmm. uh, a good diplomatic negotiation is where you have something to offer the other person mm. uh, and that is of value to them and what they have in turn is of value to you. When it comes down to hard negotiations, mm. really there is very little difference between a diplomatic negotiation and any other negotiations. It's like it, it's a question of working out what the other party wants, what's important to them, um, what their interests are, what their flexibility is, um, what um, is influencing their decision-making. Sometimes, in fact, it's important to know what their timelines are. I remember when I was in Japan, Mm. I had uh, quite a bit to do with the resources industry, and it was very commonly the case that Australian negotiators would uh, come to Tokyo to do the uh, annual coal negotiations, and they would have booked themselves back on a Friday night flight back to Sydney. And guess what? The negotiations were still going at 6 o'clock on Friday evening, 7 o'clock on Friday evening, 8 o'clock Friday evening. (laughs) And you could literally see these people getting more and more nervous as the Japanese who knew clearly what their timelines were Mm. held out. Yeah, wow. So a very... Uh, early lesson I learned from that yeah. is don't let the other people know what your timeline is because they will play to it. Yeah. And that's true of most negotiations. Mm. You try to influence the people, their perceptions of what you want. You try to understand what they really want um, and where their flexibility is. You try to create perceptions of what is important to you, which you might subsequently be prepared to offer them. So you try to create an impression that something is of great value, then you offer it to them. Yep. Um, Now, really, that's very much the same of any negotiation in any, uh, in most circumstances. It's just the subject matter uh, may be different. Yes, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, you've you've spoken a lot in this early portion about um, about the range of experience that you've had. We've also touched on touched on that notion of needing to be an advocate back to Canberra. Very much so. Yeah. I'm wondering then about notions of autonomy because that's something that's that's interested me personally mm. in in diplomacy. Um, how how much relative autonomy do you have as a diplomat, especially as a high ranking diplomat in a country? If you're if you're an Australian ambassador, what kind of leeway do you have? Um, to to conduct those negotiations and then check back in. Well, as a general comment, I think you I would find you would find that most of my colleagues would agree it was always more fun to be overseas than in Canberra because mm. you always had more autonomy. Mm. Now, of course, uh, autonomy varies a lot. Mm. Uh, when you are in another country, uh, again, with the exception of only a very few countries, mm. it is quite likely that you will soon be one of the most authoritative figures on that bilateral relationship. Right. Uh, you will have a team working with you, uh, and their job, our job, is to understand that country. Mm. Back in Canberra, there will only be a relatively few people who are able to spend time on it. Mm. So you are in a position of 
really understanding um, that country and then relating what you do to Australian interests. So you have a lot of autonomy in terms of how you pursue those interests. You have a general idea of what the interests are. And as I said earlier, you tend to focus on a couple of areas that you think there can be particular value add. Mm. Now, of course, that, that's, that's in terms of managing the overall bilateral relationship. Of course, you have to bring Canberra along with you um, if there are major initiatives that you want to have. If, for example, you want to have a, an, an agreement um, with the government, of course you have to bring Canberra. You have to advocate back to Canberra why that's important yeah. and what it will achieve in terms of Australian interests. Mm. Then if you go to the next level um, when you are sent in and a Diplomats often have to make representations um, on particular policy issues. Uh, clearly, uh, you advocate in terms of what those policy issues are, and the level of autonomy will come more in terms of how you relate it to the interests of that country. Mm. Uh, you need to find a way of bridging the Australian interests with the interests of that country in a way that will make it compelling to that country to agree with what you were doing. Mm. Now, of course, in some absolutely key vital negotiations, you will have only a very limited brief. Mm. But normally, you will always have flexibility, and um, Canberra will also uh, seek feedback mm. on what will work most effectively in that country. Yeah. Are there any are there any sort of examples that come immediately to mind? Any sort of little anecdotes of where you could use that sort of that that country knowledge? Well, let, let me say there's another way that that's, um, uh, autonomy comes through too, and that is that in terms of building relationships, um, if you're going to build a relationship of trust with the other person, you have to be able to offer them something. Mm. So sometimes you will be sounded out on an initiative they're thinking of yeah. because they want to test the waters. Yeah. And it may be that Canberra hasn't even thought about that. Yeah. Now, you could say, well, I'll have to seek advice on that. Mm. And with uh, some issues, that would be a very wise move to do. <laughs> on others, though, uh, you have to make a, a judgment on where Australia's interests lie. Yeah. And be prepared to risk your arm in terms of talking about it. Now, I, I will give you one example of that. Yeah. Uh, as you mentioned, I was involved in APEC. I was actually involved in its uh, inception. I was one of about two or three people who were uh, on the team that put it together in Australia in wow. 1989. I, and I was it for about four years at that time, so I understood the dynamics of it fairly fully. Mm. And... Uh, I was at the very first senior officials meeting, which was being hosted by the United States. And they, at that point, um, floated with me on a personal basis what I thought about leading, uh, raising the level of APEC to a heads of government state, to a leader's level. Wow. Now, at that point, uh, that was not advice we'd had from Australia. Yeah. I could have said, oh, I don't know about this. Um, but I was prepared to say, this is a personal view, hmm. uh, I, uh, which I think will be the direction that Australia would go. But I think we would be supportive of this. This would be a very opportune time. Um, Apex uh, built a, a momentum and the United States would be in a position to build and that momentum 
and bring it to fruition. Right. Now, was that influential? Ah, who knows? I mean, the fact is that they probably would have been sounding out quite a number of uh, delegates mm -hmm. on exactly that question. Yep. But sometimes you have to be prepared to change your arm and give something in order to continue that relationship of trust yeah. and indeed to be effective in the job you were doing. Mm -hmm. And so is that, does that moment stick out then as something that was quite vital to that, to that process? Oh, I, I, you mean that particular question that I was asked? No, yeah. I, mean, this, this, I mean, in that type of group um, dynamic, what happens is you spend a lot of time testing the waters. Yeah, okay. And indeed, um, part of the, one of the fascinating aspects of being involved in the uh, inception of APEC was that we spent an enormous amount of time testing regional um, thoughts of all of the key countries. Mm. And that was one of the keys to the success of the initiative. Yeah. And it's sometimes something that we forget when taking an initiative. Um, it's really important to have done the groundwork um, and to have tested countries to see whether there's a level of receptivity to, to what you're actually uh, proposing. So look, I don't kid myself that the United States was not sounding out others, <laughs> but I had a very good relationship with the head of delegation. I'd been involved um, intimately with APEC from its very, uh, you know, yeah. from uh, day one minus nine months. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so they were um, regarded, my opinion, as being useful in terms of how I would see the dynamics um, of the group. Mm. Of course, there were many other influences. Um, and um, indeed, uh, our then Prime Minister uh, did get behind the idea and was certainly highly supportive. Was he more influential than me? Undoubtedly. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so, and that's that's really interesting then, because I, in those in those types of multilateral conversations where you are all sounding each other out, is there is there a sense of competition at all in 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 needing to um, needing to be seen as being being able to represent your country's interests? Is there a definite winning ledger that goes on in those multilateral discussions, or is it very much sort of a collegiate affair? That depends a little bit on the particular organization. Yeah. Uh, again, referring back to the APEC yeah. uh, example. In the early years of APEC, it was really fascinating to see how collegiate an atmosphere we were able to create or was created, <laughs> in which you had a real sense that people were prepared to go a little bit farther along the line than might have been the case in more formalized, longer-lived um, organizations. Yeah. Now, I suspect that uh, that was very much a product um, of the early days of it. People really did see that they were on a an experiment, yeah. a, a worthwhile experiment, and it was worthwhile for them to push the boundaries. Wow. Now, in other contexts, that doesn't happen. Yeah. In other contexts, uh, people are very protective of their own uh, particular interests. They will not go beyond them. Uh, their willingness to compromise is very limited. Mm. In fact, that's actually one of the things which is interesting as a diplomat. Sometimes mm. you gain credibility if you can actually broker compromises between other countries. Right. And that's yeah. actually a very useful exercise if you're involved, for example, in an international conference uh, and there may be an issue that people are uh, 
somewhat at loggerheads over. Mm. If you can actually find a way which uh, leads to a compromise outcome, it's in everyone's interest. You gain a lot of credibility with the chair. And that, of course, helps you a lot then if there are vital interests that you yourself have. Right. Um, so, so the role that you play can be much broader than just a narrow interpretation of your own country interests. Of course, those are critical. Mm. But often the way you advance those interests are by doing it in related areas, which add to you uh, or to Australia's credibility overall. Yeah. And that's, it's really interesting because, I mean, that's just brought up that idea of flexibility in the role of a diplomat yeah. and, and the many different hats you have to Very wear much so. at any point yeah. in time. Um, I, I just, you've played a number of different key roles overseas for Australia um, in, a number of different, um, in a number of different places. I'm wondering if you can talk ever so briefly about um, well, not ever so briefly. Well, no um, diplomat no. ever talked briefly. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but if, uh, I'm wondering if you could expand a bit upon the differences between an ambassadorial role and a deputy head of mission, because they both, they both are very important to Australia's foreign service. Um, but wh- how do they differ? What are, their, what are their aims? Well, usually they are highly complementary roles mm. uh, in, in the best sense. Yeah. Uh, usually the... Uh, head of mission will have a particular set of interests which she or he will pursue, mm. and uh, the deputy may have a complementary set. Of course, as deputy, you have to be able to step in as charge d'affaires for quite significant periods of time to mm. the head of mission's uh, role. Mm. So uh, you never entirely focus on just one set of issues. Yeah. But... Uh, the role of head of mission is much like, I suppose, a deputy in many organizations. It's to support the head of mission. Yep. Sometimes you act as a conduit um, to the rest of the mission. Mm. It's, it's easy and it happens uh, with the best will in the world for heads of mission to become a little disconnected. Yep. And a good deputy head of mission will try to bring some of that reality to the head of mission, (laughs) in whatever form it may be. (laughs) And so it is a very complementary role when it works well. Yeah. Is there, I, I, I'm not suggesting that you, you have been in this, but, but when it, when it goes poorly, can it go spectacularly poorly? Yes, it can. Yeah, it can. Uh, You have to remember that uh, missions are, in Australia's case, usually fairly small bodies Mm. of uh, people. Mm. And it's uh, the dynamic in in any small group can be very difficult uh, for whatever reason. I went into one embassy and I found (laughs) the staff almost in revolt against the head of mission, which was not an easy situation (laughs) to manage. No. And I don't know that I did it very well. <laughs> uh, possibly some of the people I've worked with have said, well, we were in revolt against you and they didn't manage very well either. <laughs> so uh, it, it is quite difficult in those circumstances yeah. because um, heads of mission uh, do have a lot of levers mm. uh, and uh, conveying messages to anyone which they don't necessarily want to hear is never easy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Well, one one thing that I've been thinking about is 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 not so much how to get into or advice to get into into foreign affairs, um, but 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 on the question of what what advice you might offer for young diplomats who are already in the system, who are already even perhaps serving overseas, um, what advice would you give them? Well. I, uh, I've often had the discussion with young diplomats about whether it is better to go to a large embassy or to a small embassy. <laughs> and uh, as I mentioned, I've spent quite a bit of time in Japan. Now, if you went to the embassy in Japan, by the way, I didn't, uh, you would be in an embassy of some 50 people. You would have a highly, highly specialized uh, role and you would get to know that really intimately. Mm. But I remember when I was in uh, Berlin, I was talking to a guy and uh, in the US embassy, and he was actually the expert on the Greens Party. And he was telling me with great delight, one night he was working back and the ambassador came down and the head of section was not there and the ambassador had to speak to him. <laughs> now, in an Australian embassy, we, we don't have that size um, for uh, that level of specialization in most cases. And so what I would suggest to young diplomats was if you went into a smaller embassy, you had the opportunity to see all aspects of the embassy's work from public diplomacy, uh, through to economic work, through to uh, foreign policy work, sometimes aid work, certainly a managerial um, kind of role as well. Yeah. And so you had the chance to have a broad perspective. Yeah. As opposed to in a larger embassy where you had a chance to really specialize uh, in something. Mm. So, and, and I always found most of the um, young diplomats I've ever dealt with always enthusiastic and yes. they're almost always prepared to try anything. And, and that's a great capacity or a great attitude to have. Is that when, when you do go to a, go to a new country, um, you, you've, you've just joined your, your next mission in 2016, this was for you in Brazil. Is there, is there a real sense of um, uh, uh, discontinuity in terms of your, um, in terms of your identity? You've just landed, you're meant to be presenting um, yourself as the uh, ambassador of Australia. Is it hard to fit into that role sometimes? To be genuine, you have to be yourself. Yeah. Uh, there's no point trying to take on a persona. Yeah. Uh, you have to be who you are. Mm. Um, and if you're a uh, very humorous person, be humorous. Mm. Uh, if you're a somewhat more serious person, yeah, you, you've got to be serious. Mm. But don't take yourself too seriously. Yeah. Now, yeah. One, one of the biggest problems I suspect of lots of head submission is they do take themselves a bit too seriously <laughs> because it's a very heady position. You meet um, a lot of very senior people. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's a great privilege um, to do that. Mm. Uh, but you don't ever want, in my view, to make the mistake of thinking that is because of you as a person. It's because of the position that you're in. And yes, you have to live that position, but you have to live it in a genuine way which you are comfortable with uh, and fits your personality and approach. As, as someone who's taken on many of those positions, then, are there any, are there any tricks that you developed for keeping you, keeping you grounded? <laughs> 
Well, uh, I, I remember someone uh, saying, uh, uh, one of the, the former heads of Vision, uh, or might have been the head of the department, uh, your best critic is your partner. <laughs> and that's true, because also as a head of Mission, the problem you have is that uh, you can't be entirely in the mission. Yes. You are heading it, and so there is, however much you try, uh, there is a, something of a gap with the rest of uh, the mission. Mm. Uh, and so it, it's a mistake to, to ever be... It, you have to get the balance right of being approachable, friendly, mm. open, and so on. Mm. But there is a level of reserve as well. Mm. That, that's a difficult balance, and I can't say I always got it right. Not at yeah. all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, and then and then to finish off my questions before we open it up mm. to up to questions um, from the audience, um, of the many many jobs that you've had in international uh, affairs over such a long career, is there one that particularly sticks out to you as a favourite? <laughs> I've actually enjoyed almost all of the work I did. I, I referred back to APEC. Um, I certainly enjoyed uh, the four years I spent uh, with the uh, inception of APEC. Why did I enjoy it so much? Well, back in those days, there were no regional organizations um, in Asia. Mm. This was a really new um, venture. And it was an opportunity for me because I actually had the opportunity to travel around. I, I actually drafted the initial speech. I traveled with the then secretary of the department, uh, mm. Richard Wilcott, who was a superb diplomat, um, to visit uh, the countries in the process of drumming up support. So wow. I was able to get from a, 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 a stale's perspective, well, not exactly a snail, but whatever it is, you know, for, from a, a relatively junior official's perspective, uh, this uh, idea of what, uh, how you create a, a major new initiative and bring it to fruition. And that's an enormously interesting and satisfying experience to see. Yeah. Uh, so that, that was one which I found from a career point of view really interesting. Uh, APEC, of course, at that point, as I said, was the first intergovernmental forum really in Asia. Yeah. Uh, they had ESCAP, but that was a very different kind of role. Mm. And it was the precursor, I would argue, to many other forms of cooperation, uh, which was uh, which were subsequently evolved. It was the first organization to bring China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong in. Wow. And that was quite a big breakthrough. Yeah. So there was a lot of really groundbreaking work done at that point. So I found that fascinating. Conversely, I found it really interesting to do a job totally different, which was head of security, because I actually took over in a fairly fateful time, September 2001. Wow. And the whole security paradigm changed at that point. Yes. And I had the fascinating intellectual challenge of how you go about reshaping the way that we did security. Uh, and I found that uh, a really, really interesting, both intellectually, mm. but also because I could see that unlike in many areas of diplomacy, it had a real impact on the lives of people very directly. Yeah. People were very shaken by all of that. And you know, part of the role that you also had was a pastoral role of trying to settle people down and give them reassurances. 
apart from, uh, in addition to the core job of actually ensuring their security. So that was a fascinating job. Wow. Yeah. I, I loved my time in Germany because uh, in Germany I was there uh, just um, at the time, uh, immediately shortly after reunification, when the capital moved from Bonn to Berlin. And that was a really interesting experience. I mean, Germany is a fascinating country. Yes. Again, yeah. one which at the time I thought we needed to pay more attention to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you've, you've, you've brought up so many little tidbits in that last little question that I said we wouldn't have time to get to. And unfortunately, I'm, I'm going to have to stick to that. I'm going to open up the floor for questions. Of course. Um, this is the first time that we've actually uh, done this at the Academy, uh, at the Institute here. Uh, so this first question, what was the most challenging negotiation in your career? And what made it challenging and how did you succeed in it? Or if you did indeed succeed in it? <laughs> well, you know, in diplomatic terms, you always succeed uh, unless um, your brief is not to succeed. Mm. <laughs> uh, I think probably the most interesting negotiation was, in fact, the formation of APEC. Yeah. And that was a negotiation which lasted over... Oh, 12 months, uh, 12 or 15 months. Yeah. Why was it uh, interesting? Because at that point, there had been a lot of discussion uh, in Asia, um, a recognition that there was inadequate fora for communication among governments. Mm. There was a, a good, quite a strong second track diplomacy. But there was almost no intergovernmental. And there was a foment of ideas. Is this the right time uh, to do, be taking it a step further? And a lot of people were talking about that. So we had to make a judgments about whether and mm. how we would take that forward. Now, uh, as I said, it was a fascinating dynamic. Uh, yeah. uh, then Prime Minister Hawke made an announcement in Seoul with the idea of taking dialogue to a higher level. Yeah. We then had to give shape um, to what that meant at a time that it was very unclear how many countries would sign on to it. Yeah. So there was a process of negotiation to assess their interests, um, to see what they needed to make it worthwhile, mm. how we went about that. And that was just really fascinating. For example, we did not include the United States and Canada in the first round of discussions on membership. Why? Because um, it was a very clear strategy to make it ASEAN and Asia-centric. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, not including the US in particular made them sit up and take note. Yeah, 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 yeah. Also, the intention to include China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, that whole dynamic and whether it would work made it really interesting. That would be interesting. Uh, next question, John. Um, there must have been a situation when the interest you were advocating for Australia didn't align with your own. How did you manage that? That's a really, really good question uh, because I think as a policy individual, there is always the scope for you to have a different view. Mm. And I have to say there are um, a number of occasions, for example, over refugee policy, right. that I uh, felt uh, significant reservations mm. about what Australia was doing. Mm. Nonetheless, uh, when you are overseas, uh, you had to advocate 
what was the government uh, position. Mm. Uh, and uh, that that is what you have to do uh, as a professional and what I did. Mm. Another example which I found very interesting uh, and quite compelling was uh, sometimes when you're overseas, uh, our uh, policy, our performance on, on Indigenous affairs is raised. Mm. And I would always answer that in terms of trying to explain, as far as I was able to, as a white Australian, mm. uh, the nature of the problems, the measures that the government had taken. I wouldn't uh, seek to dismiss it in any sense, mm. um, but rather to try to put things um, in context. Yeah. And, and part of that context was that the government has put an enormous amount of effort mm. uh, with mixed success mm. um, on Indigenous affairs. Mm. Uh, so, yes, it, it's a really important question. Then I also used to uh, tell people when I was in the security role, if you actually really disagree with a policy, just don't work in that area. Yeah. Yep. And then next question, um, as an ambassador, how much of your time would be spent on trade promotion versus, say, policy issues? Well, that's something which is actually uh, a really, again, interesting question. And the answer is partly dependent on which country you're in. Yes. Yeah. You know, in Brazil, I spent a lot of time on trade and investment promotion because I saw that there was a great deal of potential. Mm. We had a very good team um, in Austrade, in Sao Paulo, and I used to do whatever I could to reinforce their um, efforts. I used to also work um, with our education counsellors in terms of promoting um, education and mm. the flow of students. So uh, in, in the Brazilian context, uh, I could see that there was a clear benefit in spending a good deal of my time on those matters. Mm. I didn't neglect policy issues, no. of course, but in a sense, they were somewhat lesser part of the diet yeah. than it might have been were you in, say, Washington, uh, where those policy issues uh, would be for many absolutely you know, central to what you are doing. Mm. And, and so it's very much a case of uh, early on in your posting, you need to decide what are the areas, as I said earlier, that you can add value. Yes. And I saw that in trade and investment, um, education, I could add value. Yeah. Uh, of course, I spent a lot of time in other areas, but those were the ones, yeah, that was the balance. And I think that's, that's really good because, I mean, it connects back to a lot of what you said earlier about how much flexibility you need as a diplomat yeah. in, in different scenarios and you will get thrown into things. Yeah, absolutely, you get thrown into things. That, that's the fun of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, next question, um, what role does one's family situation play in the life of a diplomat? And I think that goes back to your biggest critic, perhaps yeah. being your partner. That's a really... Uh, uh, difficult one. Uh, particularly nowadays, uh, the traditional role of um, a partner who would simply support the primary diplomat mm. is no longer desirable or relevant. Yes. Um, primarily, um, your partners will have careers of their own, or, or generally, uh, they will have careers of their own. And it entails a very significant sacrifice on their part mm. um, when they uh, decide to come and join you. Mm. And of course, uh, as the diplomat, 
uh, you're leading quite an exciting life. You're going out to meet a lot of people and so on. Your partner may or may not enjoy um, yeah. those functions which you have to go to. Many partners don't. Mm. Uh, and so it's a real challenge for them to find a role which is satisfying. And that puts a lot of pressure on family situations. Mm. Um, and equally, even though there's an assumption that children adapt, this is not always true. Yeah. Children's capacity to adapt is quite variable. When we were in Bangkok, my youngest son found it very confronting and uh, I really was quite concerned that he would become quite uh, unwilling to, to go overseas right? Uh, for various reasons, yeah. particularly because it was young, curly-haired, cute, the ties loved him to bits. And I remember him uh, as we were flying into uh, Bonn, sitting there and saying, now, Dad, you promise it won't be a big city? Wow. Uh, he was really, really affected by that experience, yeah. which he's come through and he loves travel now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But uh, the capacity for children to adapt is often um, not taken sufficiently into account. It's tough on them as well. Mm. Just, just, just as a brief aside. But it can be rewarding too, equally. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It gives yeah. children wonderful experiences too. Yes. As a brief, brief follow-up to that, you, you, you were head of, um, of the security Yes. In, in, in following September 2001, you took over then. Was there a significant change in the way that families were looked at with, with diplomats? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. Mm. I, uh, I actually, there, there were several dimensions in which that happened. There were some conflict situations where families had to be withdrawn from the posting mm. um, at various points. Uh, of course, you would not be sending any families into Baghdad after we opened oh. up a post there. Yeah. So... Um, families were drawn very much more um, into the security briefing situation so that they were uh, uh, drawn far more into an awareness of, of the circumstances they were going into. Mm. Because, of course, it wasn't just a terrorism risk. Um, there are many posts where crime is um, significant, yeah. uh, where personal security is a major issue. Yes. And so we had to develop far more inclusive uh, courses and training for people, um, mm. how to respond in these circumstances. My basic advice in terms of personal security was the best weapon uh, to defend yourself with is a good pair of running shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing is worth risking your life or your health over. No, of course not. Um, what is one strategy you find effective in understanding a culture, especially if negotiations are tricky? I think if we, if we leave leave aside that second part of that question. Is there a strategy that you find effective in understanding a culture? Well, I um, love history. Yeah. Uh, and I think you need to understand, to understand a country, you have to understand where it's coming from and what are the experiences which have led to the current situation that it is in. Mm. So if you just look at a country as a current snapshot, I think you lose a lot of depth and perception of what has actually led it to be there. Right. So uh, if you uh, don't understand those antecedents, mm. it becomes rather harder, in my view, to understand where a country might go. 
Yeah. Um, if you've had a particular historical circumstances, that will influence the way people think. Mm. And unless you're aware of that, yeah. um, it becomes harder to predict. Mm. So you need to go in with an open mind, try to understand where people are coming from. Yeah. And then the best way to test those things is to go out and talk with them. Yeah. Yep. I, I, and, and very quickly as a, as, as a follow-up just then, is it, is it easier or harder understanding a culturally homogenous country like Japan, say, as opposed to one that isn't as cultural, that is more diverse in its, in its population? Well, even in a very culturally homogenous society like Japan, there are different groups and interests within uh, the society. Yeah. Yes, the way that uh, the culture uh, has developed mm. uh, it makes particular attitudes more commonplace throughout the society. Yeah. But within the society itself, you need to understand the dynamic of the different interests which operate within it. Mm. Um, and the diversity of those interests that operate within even a homogenous society yeah. uh, are, are very, very considerable. Yeah. Now, um, in a more multicultural, multiracial society, there are over extra overlays to that complexity. Yeah. Yep. Um, what made you want to become a diplomat? That's an interesting one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'd always been interested. I, I suppose when I was at university, I actually studied um, economics, politics, and Japanese. And I studied uh, Japanese because I thought, well, anyone could be an economist. And so I needed to have something which was actually a little bit more specialized. And mm. at the point that I was at university, uh, Japan was the major emerging um, economic partner of Australia. Mm. Uh, Japan was um, in the 70s and 80s to Australia what uh, China is on steroids to Australia now. Yeah. Uh, and so I was particularly interested in uh, seeing that dimension mm. and developing an expertise in it. Um, and indeed, just an aside, I, uh, I learned Japanese for uh, a couple of years and absolutely hated it <laughs> and decided that I'd um, actually better go to Japan and either learn to like um, learning Japanese um, or alternatively just drop it, cut my losses. Yep. I went for six weeks, spent um, a year there, loved the wow. country, still hated learning the language. <laughs> <laughs> that is, wow, that's an interesting one. Well, no. I think... Th are there, any, are there any more questions from your Oh, list? so I didn't know that I actually fully answered that. So, so I actually went from there um, through a, a number. I, I had an unusual course in that I, I didn't become a, a diplomat straight out of university. I actually right. um, had other work experiences. Yeah. And uh, in a way, I kept on. I, I always had that very strong uh, international element. Yeah. Um, so a lot of my time uh, before I actually became part of the department was actually dealing with international issues in one form or another. So after being a student in Japan, I actually lived there for a couple of years mm -hmm. and that was an absolutely fascinating experience yeah. um, as well. So uh, all of those things in a sense led, uh, had a gravitational pull yeah. um, in that uh, direction. Led inextricably to it, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how important are mid-tour consultations returning to? Uh, actually, that's a uh, really important question because 
it's really interesting how quickly it's possible to come out of touch with Australia. Yeah. Okay. I, uh, firstly, if you live in Canberra, Canberra is not representative of Australia. It's, uh, in some senses, it's a great city. I'm yeah. not a Canberra basher. Yeah. Um, but it's not reflective of the multicultural societies of Melbourne and so many parts um, of Australia. It's, yeah. it's, it's kind of more like a, a historical throwback um, time lag. Yeah. Uh, time lag is probably fairer because um, it certainly evolves and it evolves very rapidly. I, and, and it's always surprised me uh, when you're overseas for even relatively short times how easy it is to lose a sense of the pulse of the country. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter how much you read the, the media and so on. You actually, it, it, there is a risk of losing contact with the developments um, going on. So midterm consultations are enormously important for that reason. They're enormously important because they give an opportunity to talk with stakeholders back in Australia, mm. um, often to advocate to them the things which they may not be aware of, to drum up interest in the country of accreditation. Uh, so it, it's it's an enormously refreshing process um, in every sense of of the word. Yeah, and so in your in your in your experience, those kind of midterm consultations are they when you when you head back for them um, and then they occur? How long how long do they take? Well, there was always a limit on how long you could actually be out of country, which yes. was always a bit frustrating because um, typically I would go back for four weeks and I'd spend about three weeks on consultations and about one week on leave. Right. So, so it was not very much opportunity to actually have leave at the time because yes. you have to visit stakeholders in um, all of the states. There's typically a conference or something that you might form it around um, in Canberra. Mm. Um, so that they are a complicated, uh, they're, they're, they're a very compressed and you also use that as time for advocacy for going out giving talks about um, what your country is and, yes, and so on yeah no absolutely well i think we might um we might take one more question uh no we okay um, uh, I, I think we've run yes, out of time to take all of the questions unfortunately so. we have run out of time to take all the questions so we can't we can't take them all tonight and i do apologize for everyone who has uh, taken the opportunity to write down a question for um, for John here and not being able to get it answered. We do apologise, um, but I do want to thank you all for attending. I think this is this is the start of a really exciting series of events that are going to take a look at experiences from diplomats, um, just to sit down and have a conversation about those experiences, what they've been able to go through um, during their career, and then the lessons learned from that. Um, because I think it's very important to be able to actually reflect upon those and then bring those into the next, the next um, generation. Um, so, John, I, again, thank you very much for your time uh, this evening. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I think you've given a, a vast range of really interesting, exciting insights into what it's like across, across a vast number of positions in, in serving the Australian public. Well, um, thank you very much, James. You took the words out of my mouth. It has been a pleasure, uh, and I hope people have found it interesting. Yeah. I very much appreciate um, the time um, they have put in um, to listening to this. And, and may I emphasize that one of the wonderful things about being a diplomat is everyone's experience is different. Mm. So that, that's my take on it. Other people will have a very different take on it. But it's a great privilege to be able to represent your country overseas and uh, one which I am absolutely delighted um, to have had the opportunity to do. Fantastic. Thank, thank you, James. You, thank you, everyone. And, and thank you. 